Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in the first vision, aren't we, Bryce? Yes, the great first vision. What a great opportunity to go back to the very basics. But I would suggest at least three things that I want to point out. Number one, this is the beginning of the restoration. This event ushers in the restoration. And to that end, let me begin with a marvelous talk that Bruce R. McConkie gave back in 1975. I'm just going to read his words just to kind of set the stage for what the first vision is. He said, Once or twice in a thousand years, perhaps a dozen times since mortal man became of dust a living soul, An event of such transcendent import occurs that neither heaven nor earth are ever thereafter the same. Once or twice in a score of generations, the hand from heaven clasps the hand on earth in perfect fellowship. The divine drama unfolds and the whole course of mortal events changes. Now and then in a quiet garden or amid the fires and thunders of Sinai, or inside a sepulcher that cannot be sealed, or in an upper room, almost always apart from the gaze of men and seldom known by more than a handful of people, the Lord intervenes in the affairs of men and manifests His will relative to their salvation. One such event took place six millennia ago in a garden which was planted eastward in Eden when the man Adam and the woman Eve fell that men might be. Another such event altered the course of human history when the aged prophet believed God and built an ark wherein he and seven others out of all the inhabitants of the earth were saved from a watery grave. The most transcendent of all of such events occurred in a garden called Gethsemane outside Jerusalem's walls when the chief citizen of planet earth sweat great drops of blood from every pore as he in agony took upon himself the sins of all men on conditions of repentance. Yet another of these events, destined to affect the life and being of every living soul, happened in the Arimathean's tomb when the sinless spirit of the one perfect man returned from the paradise of God to inhabit again, this time in glorious immortality, the pierced and slain body that once was his. But the occurrence of which we desire more particularly to speak and which ranks in importance alongside the greatest verities of revealed religion, is one that took place in a grove of trees near Palmyra, New York, on a beautiful, clear day early in the spring of 1820. Was it on the 6th of April? Perhaps. Such at least is the tradition. But be that as it may, what transpired at that time was destined to affect the salvation of billions of our father's children who should live on earth from that day to the great winding up scene when the Son of Man shall deliver the kingdom spotless to his father. Now this is Bryce again. This, this next paragraph is why I read this. Elder McConkie continues, By comparison to what then occurred... The command of the man Moriankomer unto the mountain Zeran remove, and it was removed. Or the decree of the man Moses to the Red Sea divide, and the waters were divided, congealing on the right hand and on the left. Or the command of the man Joshua, sun stand thou still, and thou moon likewise, and it was so. By comparison to what happened in that grove of trees in western New York on that spring morning, such things as these fade into an obscure insignificance. That is the first vision. That is the awe and the reverence that we should have this week as we study the first vision by comparison to what happened in that grove of trees. And I'm going to begin here. I know this is coming at the end. But when Joseph goes home from the first vision, he says two things to his mom. The first one is, all 
as well. Now, the reality is all was not well with the Smith family, nor with Joseph. His life was dramatically changed, and he is going to be persecuted from pillar to post. He will die a martyr's death because of what happened in that grove of trees. He will be hunted and hated. He will not know who his true friends and his true enemies are. Many times throughout his life, he will be tarred and feathered. He will be held on as a hero and a humbug. And yet, because of what he came to know in that grove of trees, he was able to say, all is well. And I would say, as you study this week, you need to realize that no matter what's happening in your life, no matter the challenges you face, no matter if it's death or disease or a loss of a job or a child that's gone astray, no matter what you stress about, no matter what pains you face and no matter what keeps you up at night, because of what happened in that grove of trees, all of us can say, all is well. Joseph said that before William Clayton wrote it, and we sing it. Because of what happened in that grove of trees, all is well. So that's one way to look at the first vision this week, the ushering in of the restoration, the ending of the apostasy. The second thing I want to point out is notice that God restores information in the order of importance. That's very important. I got that from Ezra Taft Benson when he pointed out, you need to understand where the Lord put the Book of Mormon in the Restoration. That should tell you the importance of the Book of Mormon. It came before the priesthood. It came before the restoration of the church. It came before temples. It came before a vision of the three degrees of glory. The Book of Mormon came first, except for one event. There was one event that preceded the Book of Mormon. So taking President Benson's idea one step further, if God is restoring the truth in the order of importance, what truth comes first? Therefore, may I suggest the greatest truth in the possession of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the identity of God. We know who he is. Years ago, Jesus spoke to a woman. I'm going to paraphrase John chapter 4. He spoke to a woman at a well who was a Samaritan, and they ended up having a discussion about religion, and she brought up where they worship. You Jews worship at the temple, and we Samaritans worship next to Jacob's well. So we worship where Jacob worshiped. So we've got it right. And Jesus basically criticizes her, not criticize, he corrects her and says, look, it doesn't matter where. He says, woman, the hour cometh when neither at Jerusalem nor at this well, in this mountain, will you worship the Father. And then Jesus proclaims a divine truth. We know what we worship. Therefore, salvation, he says, is of the Jews. Well, today, lovingly, we look at the whole world and we say, ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship. That is the premier truth of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We know that God is our Father. We know what His purposes are. We know who He is. We know what He's like. We know His relationship to the Son, to Jesus. All of that was restored in 30 seconds of the first vision. If you take the first vision out of our theology, we lose everything. We are the first vision. The church is the first vision because our greatest gift to the world, our greatest truth is that we know who God is. We know where he came from. We know where he's going. We know what he wants to do. All of that is the restoration, and it begins in that grove of trees in New York. So let's now focus on young Joseph and this grove, and what are the truths that we can pull out of the document that Joseph wrote, the different versions, and why is he there? What's going on in his life? Why is he in New York? Why is he in the grove? What's going on? 
So in the beginning, Joseph talks about how his family kind of moved around a little bit, right? If you look in the third verse where he says, my father, Joseph Smith, left the state of Vermont and moved to Palmyra. And in their marriage, at least to this point, Joseph Smith Sr. and his wife, Lucy, moved like nine times. That's a lot of moving. And it wasn't just to the house next door. They're making major moves, major, right? Yeah, in even changing their work. You know, he worked a little bit with a ginseng root that they were to export to China. He was a farmer. He worked in a mercantile business. He even taught school. And they were constantly moving. And one of the things that caused them to move to Palmyra was something that happened across the world. Just south of Borneo in Indonesia, there was this volcano, Mount Tambora, that exploded. And it just put all this particulate matter up into the atmosphere. And that was in April of 1815. So Joseph was just a young man. And this caused, in fact, they call 1816 the year without a summer. And it dropped the temperatures across the world. And because of that, there were all these crop failures. And of course, the Smith family was affected. And that caused them to move. And interestingly enough, Bryce, I'm going to make a connection between the first vision, the mountain that blew up in Indonesia, and the bicycle. And so for the rest of your life, when you see a bicycle, I want you to think of Joseph Smith's first vision. So it sounds like a really weird connection, but here we go. This when, is why we all love Mike, right? <laughs> this is why we love Mike, and we love to hear these connections. Such a weird story. But uh, there was this German fellow that invented the first bicycle, and his name was Carl Drace. So when the volcano exploded, it just, across the globe, we don't have crops. It just, it dropped the temperature. They didn't have a summer. And so the prices skyrocketed. Well, one of the crops that was affected were, were oats and what do horses eat, right? So now horses can't get oats. And some historians say all these horses started dying and people in Europe are like, how are we going to get around? That's your main source of transportation. And so this guy, this German comes up with an idea. He's like, let's invent this, these wheels. And you can kind of, the first bicycles didn't have pedals or, or gears. You just kind of were in this contraption. If you've ever seen the Flintstones, that's the best way I can describe it. You kind of like, <laughs> I don't know how to do it, right? It's hard to do on a podcast, but Fred Flintstone, remember how he's pedaling with his feet and it makes the car go? Well, that was the first bicycle. And ironically, that's what you give a kid nowadays. You give a, a kid a pedalless bike right. so they can learn to get their balance and they just push with their feet and they scoot along and they ride. Well, that's what the first one looked like. <laughs> so out of this weird, tragic event of a, a volcano blowing up on the other side of the world, I think last year there was $120 billion spent on bicycles. So if you've ever ridden a bicycle, just think first vision because that volcano blowing up across the world caused all these problems. The Smith family moves. Now, Bryce, why do they have to move to Palmyra from a gospel perspective? Well, there's some golden plates buried in Palmyra, and we've got to get Joseph next to them. We've got to get the right person in the right place for the right time. Now, just as a side note, what Mike's getting to is God has the ability to know who needs to be where. You will remember that God told Nephi 2,400 years, 2,400 years before he needed them to make another set of plates because he knew that Oliver Cowdery was going to lose the 116 pages. He just has this ability to get you where you need to be, and he got Joseph where Joseph needed to be. And who would have thought that a volcano halfway around the world would have been instrumental in the restoration because it got the Smith family where the Smith family needed to be. And it is my testimony that the same thing is going on in your life. He will get you where you need to be. I know my mother-in-law listens to this podcast, and they get a little upset when I kind of am so appreciative of this, but my father-in-law lost his job and moved his family right into my neighborhood. And that's how I found my wife. I came home from my mission, and she walked into my ward sacrament meeting. And not one year after we got married does he lose his job again and move right back to where he came from. God will get you where you need to be, when you need to be there. And I am grateful that he was brilliant enough to help my father-in-law lose his job twice. 
so that I met my wife. The point is God used a volcano to get the Smith family where the Smith family needed to be for his purposes. Yeah, and it's right there. It's in the text. I like to say, read the white spaces between the words. You know, ask questions like, well, why are they moving? What's going on? And so historically, that's what's happening. And Bryce, I too have had experiences like this. In my life, I wanted to be a pilot, and I I passed all the tests. I had the, the full thing going on with Air Force ROTC, and my last test was the colorblind test. And they put the plates in front of me, and I could not see any of the colors. And the guy in charge looked at me, and he said, Mike, you'll never fly a plane. That's just not going to happen. But uh, I got to tell you. Um, and again, we're all grateful that the Lord crushed young Mike Day's dream. <laughs> so anyway, back to the volcano. So the volcano gets him moving, and they move. And at this time, Joseph's father, Joseph Smith Sr., is 48, and his mother is 43. And Joseph has two older siblings. And he kind of talks about his family here. If you look in verse uh, 7, it was in my 15th year, and my father's family was proselytized to the Presbyterian faith, and four of them joined that church, namely my mom, Lucy, and my brother Hiram, and Samuel, and my sister Sophronia. Well, Sophronia is 16, so we have Alvin, who's 22, Hiram, who's 20, Sophronia, who's 16, and Joseph, who's 14. And then we have some other siblings, a 12-year-old, a 9-year-old, 7, and Don Carlos is 4. So we have a big family, and Joseph's right in the middle of this huge family, and they're moving, and there's all this religious excitement at the time. If you go to Palmyra, there's, there's a corner there where there's a bunch of churches, but before 1823, from what I read, there was just really one church there, and it was the Presbyterian Church. And so as you go through the text and you kind of read how Joseph is leaning towards the Methodist faith, you might ask yourself, well, then, well, how is he doing this? Because there's not a, a brick-and-mortar Methodist church in 1820 in Palmyra. And the answer is they would have these itinerant preachers that would travel, and they would have these big camp meetings. And you would go, and they'd kind of set up like a stage, and preachers would kind of tag team, right? It's like WWF, right? Bryce would get up there and do his bit, and then he'd high-five me, and I'd get up there and do my bit, and then they'd kind of rotate. Well, at these camp meetings, they also had grog shops, and you would kind of get together, and people would get kind of liquored up, and they'd go, and they'd listen to the preacher, and it was interactive. Like, they'd sometimes cat call the preacher and go back and forth, and these would last for a long time, sometimes the whole day or the weekend, and... It was a way that people could get together and socialize. And so we think that's happening during this time. There's strong evidence that that's what's happening. His brother, um, William, his younger brother, way, way later in uh, the late 1800s, testified that uh, Joseph heard a sermon by a fellow by the name of Reverend Lane, who was a Methodist preacher. And the pretext to his sermon, according to William, was, what church shall I join? And he used James 1.5 as a pretext to say, hey, there's all these different churches, all these different movements. You should go ask God. Now, was that the sermon that got Joseph to read James 1.5 and to think about it? We don't know. But I think that we could say, well, at least according to William, that was probably what really got Joseph thinking about this. And Bryce, I really like the church, one of the church videos in the first vision where it shows Joseph going through seasons of time thinking about, okay, am I going to be a Presbyterian? Am I going to be a Methodist? Now, I think one of the reasons why Joseph Smith identified with the Methodist faith is because it was more in line with the concept of agency. Presbyterianism came out of Calvinism, which was this idea that God had predetermined everything, and you were already saved or damned based on God's decision long ago, long before you were born. And in the Methodist faith, it was more in line with Joseph's American values. If I have that 10 acres of land I need to clear and plant wheat, I got to get my ax. I got to rip those trees out and I got to cut them out and pull them out and I've got to do the work. And if I do the work, then I read the harvest. And I really see Joseph identifying with those principles and those ideas. And by the way, that's what he did, right? I mean, that's what he spent his time doing. So Joseph was attuned to working hard and seeing the fruits of his labors. And this was not something light. I mean, his mother was moving towards the Presbyterian church. He was going to choose a church different than the one his own mother was choosing. That must have meant it meant a lot to him, and that he investigated it. In one of the accounts of the first vision, he mentions that he was 12 when all of this started. 
and he's now 14. So clearly, this is not something that happened in a day or a week or even a month. It was years. This process was many years in which Joseph was investigating, and he came to a conclusion different than the one his own mother had come to. And that was a big deal, I think. Yeah. One of the things we can get out of this when it comes to Revelation, for me personally, Bryce, there have been times where I've had really intense and deep questions, and I've asked the Lord, and I've got nothing. And then I spend time studying and studying, and I ask and I ask. And for me, one of my questions was 20 years of thinking about it. And I, you know, back to that rock wall analogy, I'd take this rock and I couldn't fit it anywhere in the wall. I didn't tear down the wall. I just kept building the wall. But one day for me, that rock fit, but it was 20 years. So let's jump into that, Mike. Let's, of all the things, I mean, you can see so many things in this first vision. There's so much here for you to study this week. But one of the things I would recommend you take some time and ponder is that the first vision is a pattern of prayer. It is a boy who has a question and gets an answer. And the pattern Joseph taught here is absolutely phenomenal. So let's do Joseph before, and then what does Joseph do, and then Joseph after. Now, this is where I really wish I had a whiteboard that I could simply say, here's the situation Joseph's in. Here's pre-first vision Joseph. And then here's what he does about it, and then here's the result of it. So let's begin, all right? Verse 8, towards the end, if you want to jump into the first vision, Joseph Smith History 1, verse 8. He says, I was so young and unacquainted with the things of man, he could not come to any certain conclusion. So if you are in that situation where you can't come to any certain conclusion, that's one statement. Three other statements from verse 12. He says, knowing that if any person needed wisdom from God, I did. So he couldn't come to any certain conclusions, and he needed wisdom from God. For how to act, I did not know. There's a third one. So he couldn't come to any certain conclusions. He needed wisdom from God because he did not know how to act, and he couldn't settle the question with an appeal to the Bible. So there's the situation that often leads to prayer. There's the situation that often leads our need to go to a divine source. Now, Heavenly Father says, gather all the information you can on your own. But there comes a point where it's like, Heavenly Father, I don't know what to do. And I can't settle the question anywhere here on earth. I need wisdom from God. I can't come to a certain conclusion. So that's Joseph before that if you can't come to a certain conclusion because you need wisdom from God, because you don't know how to act, and you can't settle the question anywhere else, then you are in Joseph Smith's situation. Now, here's what he does. Let's go back. And this is a long list. We'll kind of go through it quickly. I'd recommend that in your study this week, if you're reading this before your study, that you now pay attention to all the things that Joseph does all the things that Joseph goes through to get an answer to his prayer. It's not all the things that he does, because sometimes someone else does something, but this is what Joseph goes through to get an answer to his prayer, because he needs wisdom from God. All right, starting in verse 8, notice Joseph talks about serious reflection. Do you give your problems serious reflection? Do you ponder them? Do you take serious time to reflect upon them. He talks about deep and often poignant feelings, because God is going to answer your prayers when they mean that much to you. There's a pattern there. Do you have deep and poignant feelings? Now, notice the next one. I think this is absolutely crucial, and I have I have noticed over my life that this is where many of us fail to get answers to prayer. Joseph pays a price to gather as much information as he can. If you are a high school senior and you're wondering where to go to college and you're sitting in your room waiting for God to tell you where to go to school, it's just not going to happen. And we often do that. We sit back and wait for Heavenly Father to tell us without paying the price. Oliver Cowdery is going to learn this mistake when he tries to translate the gold plates. The Lord's going to say, you didn't do the divine homework 
that you need to do in order to have that information. I love how President Nelson's been wording his counsel to the church. I urge you to do the divine work necessary to qualify for the Holy Ghost. So Joseph attended their several meetings as often as occasion would permit. That's crucial. You have to do all that you can. If you're waiting for a spouse, if you're looking for an eternal companion, and you're not out there looking, and you're not doing what you can do to find an eternal companion, you're limiting God. Because God requires us to act. He requires us to do something. Years ago, one of my supervisors was called as a mission president, but they had a handicapped child that limited where they could be called. And on numerous occasions, the, the mission department would call him and say, President, if we called you to this particular situation, would that work with your son? And then they'd call back and, well, what if we moved you to this particular situation and this mission, would that work with your son? And one day, my friend just simply said, why don't you just ask God and wherever he sends you, that's where we'll go. And the mission department responded by, that's what we're trying to find out. And it was that same mistake. Just, just ask Heavenly Father and he'll tell you, no, we are doing our divine homework. We are doing all that we can to gather the information that we can. So Joseph attended their several meetings as often as occasion would permit. This is so good. He's going to these meetings. He's counseling with human beings. This council is part how we get revelation. If you think about a ward council or a family council or the council of God in the heavens, right? Over and over again in the Old Testament, we have God presiding over a council, and there's usually, you know, we have Elyon and we have Jehovah, and then we have the angels. And how many times we'll see this in church history where Joseph, to get the mind of God, he encircles himself with the best that the Lord has given him, right? People that are missionaries, people that... Sidney Rigdon is a brilliant orator and brilliant scholar of the Bible. Why? We're counseling, right? Anyway, just a thought on what you're talking about there. Yeah. So good. It's a brilliant observation that Joseph's gathering info here. Don't make Oliver Cowdery's mistake and just assume that God will tell you, you know, without doing your divine homework. But then the next one I think is just as critical. I've seen people go out and do their homework, and then they say, okay, Heavenly Father, I've done my homework. Now you tell me what the right thing to do is, and they wait for God to make a decision. But in this world of agency, and one of the truths that, like Mike mentioned, one of the great truths of the restoration is agency. Notice what Joseph does, and I think a lot of you might be surprised to realize this. Joseph made a decision. He chose a church. He says, in process of time, my mind became somewhat partial to the Methodist sect. He chose. We need to understand that quite often God expects us to make our very best choice, and then the Lord will come in and confirm it. Some of us stop just short of that. We go out and we do all the investigating, but then we wait for God to make the decision. Now, that's easy because I'm putting the agency on God. I'm putting the responsibility on God, and the Lord says, "Uh uh-uh, I'm putting it right back on you. I need you to do your very best to make a decision. You got to choose. Now, Joseph doesn't end up becoming a Methodist because the Lord comes down and gives him some more information, but God required Joseph Smith to make a choice, and I think that's significant. He's going to give you some divine help, but investigate and then make a choice. And then ask if your choice is right. And so Joseph, he's partial to the Methodist sect. Just a couple others I'm going to throw in. Look at verse 10. I often said to myself, this was clearly something Joseph was thinking about for a long time. Verse 11, he uses the word laboring. While I was laboring under these extreme difficulties. Now, notice in verse 11, he appealed to the Bible. He appealed to what information he had available. He went to the Bible. He went to the Scriptures. Now, did the Scriptures answer his question? No. And quite often, the Scriptures don't necessarily have the answer. But going to the Scriptures opens the door for revelation that does answer your question. 
I think that's crucial to understand. The scriptures did not tell him which sect to join, which church was true. Going to the scriptures simply opened the door to revelation. But he did. He appealed to the scriptures. And in verse 12, he reflected on the scriptures again and again. This is a question that this boy sincerely wants answered. All right, now, where he prays. Verse 14, he retired to the woods early in the morning. So why the woods and why the morning? May I suggest that Joseph was seeking a time to be unrushed and uninterrupted. I don't know if you can pray that way all the time. I can. I have 10 kids. My life is a little crazy. But there has to be some moment, maybe daily, maybe more, whatever your time frame, do you find time to be unrushed and uninterrupted with God? If you think about the times we normally pray, we're always rushed and interrupted. Right before we eat when we're hungry, right before we leave when we're a little bit late, right before we go to bed when we're tired. And those are fine. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray at those moments, but there needs to be a moment where, like Joseph, you are unrushed and uninterrupted. And then the last one in verse 14 is he prayed vocally. That's weird that he's alone and he prayed vocally. And I know several of the apostles, Elder Holland talks about this, that sometimes forcing yourself to pray vocally, where you focus on the words that you're saying out loud, might be beneficial. I'd encourage you to try it. Pray vocally. Verse 15, he had already planned out this place. He found himself alone. He knelt down. And then I love verse 15. This is a great description of what prayer is. It is an offering up of the desires of our heart. Do you offer up the desires of your heart? Do you know what you desire? Yeah. And notice he's clearly reflected and labored and asked. Now, also in verse 15, you need to understand that there's going to be a force trying to stop you. Are you prepared for the power of someone who's trying to stop you? Because in verse 16, he exerted all of his powers to call upon God in that darkness. There is a force trying to stop you from prayer. Um, in one of the other accounts of the first vision, Joseph heard footsteps, and it stopped his prayer. He, he stood up and he stopped praying. And I think that's a symbol of our prayers, that the opposition, the enemy, is going to try and do so many things. Nephi says that the spirit of the devil is going to try and stop you from praying. So are you prepared to exert your power through those darknesses? Or do you give in to the darkness and stop praying? Are you distracted? Do you hear the footsteps stand up and never get back to your prayer? But exerting all of his power, he called upon God. Now look again, verse 18, my object in going to inquire of the Lord. Sometimes it's very important that we have an object in mind, that I'm going to the Lord with an object in mind. This is what I want to talk to God about. Now, maybe not every prayer needs to be that way, but there needs to be this occasionally. There needs to be, I have something I need to talk to God about. I have an object. And then I love in verse 18, he says in, his, in the parentheses, it had never entered into my heart that they were all wrong. Are you prepared and are you willing to accept an answer that you haven't even considered yet? Do you go to God and say it's either A or B? It's got to be either A or B. And God comes back and says, what about F or G? No, 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 no. It has to be A or B. Joseph had never thought that they were all wrong. He was just assuming that one of them was right. I just need to know which one. And the Lord says, no, none of them are right. And he says, okay, I'll accept that answer. Are you willing to accept an answer you hadn't even considered? Because Joseph is determined to act on the answer. Now, those are the things Joseph does. Now, you'll probably find more as you read this week, but that's a beautiful list, a pattern of prayer. If you do that, 
Verse 20, it is my testimony and the first vision's testimony, and God seems to be testifying that if you do these things, the result is two things. What does Joseph say to his mom after his prayer? I believe it's the same two things that you will be able... Now, again, like Mike said, some prayers take 20 years. Some prayers take many years. Faith in God, Neil A. Maxwell taught us, is faith in his timing, not ours. But I testify that because of your prayer, you will be able to say the same things, the same two things that Joseph says to his mother. First, all is well. You will get your answer. And then you'll be able to say, I love the second thing, five of my favorite words that Joseph Smith uttered. I have learned for myself. I have learned for myself. And you'll be able to say that. When Remember, pre-Joseph, I don't know what to do. I need wisdom from God. I don't know how to act. And now he's saying, I have learned for myself. Whether that's a major decision like where to go to school or what career to choose or who to marry, or where to move to, or when and where do we have another child, or whether or not I join the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or whatever, you pray like Joseph Smith, and I testify you'll be able to say, all is well, and I have learned for myself. That's the beauty of the first vision. It is a pattern of how to prayer. Because yes, it ushers in the restoration. Yes, it reveals our primary doctrine, the identity of God. But if you strip those things away, what you'll see is a young boy who has a question and a concern that he can't answer anywhere else. He turns to God and he gets an answer. And he teaches us in the process how to get answers to prayer. So good. I really think that this experience it's crucial that we believe it, that we have a testimony of it. You know, I can't even tell you how many times I've had the Spirit testify to me, this is real. But I really like how you take it and you say, okay, but it's more than just Joseph's experience. Joseph is showing us how to do it. He's showing us how to have this experience. I love that verse where he's like, I go to the Bible and I couldn't settle the question. Verse 12, he says, For the teachers of religion of the different sects understood the same passage of Scripture so differently as to destroy all confidence in settling the question by an appeal to the Bible. And we're in that situation. Back in verse 10, we live in a war of words and a tumult of opinion. We live in that same war of words and tumult of opinion where you necessarily can't settle questions by an appeal to the Bible or an appeal to anything else. So do your very best, but then go to God and get your own answers for yourself. It's a great pattern. This whole pattern, Joseph is in a pattern that all of us face, a war of words. Tell me social media hasn't become a war of words and a tumult of opinion, and you can't settle the question with social media. You can't go to social media and know what truth is, because there's going to be a war of words and a tumult of opinion. And so you've got to turn to the Lord. You've got to reflect upon it, and you've got to go to God. And if you do, you'll be able to say, all is well, I have learned from myself. Great pattern. Yeah, I, I even think one of the things about social media that's more real than it was back in the day when we were, when we were younger, if you had a friend who had a struggle or if you had a friend or a loved one that was struggling in their testimony, you wouldn't necessarily know in 1980. But today they broadcast it and they say, I'm struggling with this. And so maybe you've never even had that question and it's someone that you respect and you read it and then it shakes your faith because now their question has become your question. And you think about Joseph's experience, his own mother is like, Joseph, we got to go in this route. And I really do think there was a lot of pressure on Joseph. It's a lot of pressure because it's not just his mom, it's two older brothers and an older sister who have joined the Presbyterian. That's back in verse 7. So there is a lot of pressure. Yeah. And you're going to have a lot of pressure on social media. People you love and respect are going to push you in one direction. And Joseph says, I had to find out for myself. And in the end, he came to say, I have learned from myself that Presbyterianism is not true. That is not the direction I need to go. 
And I think that's the whole point here is social media may put a lot of pressure on you to go in a certain direction, but have the courage like Joseph did to go seek answers and find them for yourself and say, I have learned for myself that this is true. You'll note also that the objections that the Methodist preacher has, if you go to verse 21, he goes and tells one of the Methodist preachers, he says in verse 21, that I told him about my vision. And he says he didn't treat it only lightly, but he treated it with great contempt. And then he said it was all of the devil. And then here's the quote, that there were no such things as visions or revelations in these days, that all such things had ceased with the apostles, and there never would be any more of them. That statement by that Methodist preacher is, in essence, the objection to a lot of the truth claims of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The objection is simply this. Everything that God ever has revealed, everything is going to be contained within those the cover of the Bible itself. That's a claim the Bible itself doesn't even make. The Bible itself doesn't even say that it contains all truth. And yet that claim comes out of ancient Christianity. A long time ago, there was this guy by the name of Montanus or Montanus, however you want to say his name, and he claimed revelatory powers. This is in the early part of, the, of, of Christian history as they were starting to put together their texts and to establish orthodoxy. And this fellow, Montanus, said essentially that he was a revelator. And he taught things that were against the orthodox teachers of the day. And so the doctrine of sufficiency of scripture, that that is all that's needed, came out of the what's called the Montanist controversy is what it's called, if you Google that and you can read about that. And that kind of just carries its tradition over time. And so in Joseph's day, the scripture is it. And so why do we have all these different churches? Well, the answer is they all interpret the Bible differently. Why? Well, if I interpret it different than you, then I have a different faith tradition. And so we have all these things coming out of the rebellion against Catholicism in what's called the Reformation. And so I want to tip my hat to the Reformers and say, although I don't agree with everything and all their conclusions that they came up with, the one thing that I'm grateful for is that they existed and that they did disagree and that they lived in a time where many of them survived. Many of them were able to make it through the persecution and get their point across and share these different viewpoints. And so the Reformers were a precursor to the restoration, to the first vision. And they're also a pattern for you and I, because if you follow Joseph, I, I, I love, I'm, in, I'm intrigued by the word in verse 21, that he was greatly surprised. You shouldn't be. We have had enough experience that you shouldn't be surprised, and even though we all are, you shouldn't be surprised at the reaction of people around you when you choose truth, when you choose to follow what God reveals to you. If you choose to follow Joseph and join the church that he restored, if you choose to follow the Book of Mormon, first, not only will they treat you lightly, but they'll treat you with great contempt. They'll say it's of the devil. Verse 23, you will have to face a great deal of prejudice. Verse 22, you will have to face a great deal of prejudice, great persecution, which will continue to increase and become bitter persecution by the end of verse 22. That last phrase in 22 fascinates me, that it was common among all the sects, all united to persecute me. There's only one thing that all Christian organizations can agree on, and that is Joseph Smith was not a prophet of God. They fight against the restoration. By the end of verse 23, it has become the most bitter persecution. You should not be surprised if you choose truth that you face persecution. Amulek in the Book of Mormon will say that he was rejected by those who ought to have been his friends. Don't be surprised if you are rejected by those who ought to be your friends and care about you the most. So what is going to get you through the persecution? Well, I love 24 and 25, some of the greatest things that Joseph Smith taught. It's just simply when the flame of the persecutors is thrown against you, what is the shield that you hold up? See, I'm, I'm intrigued by the phrase fiery dart. That phrase comes up often in the scriptures that you need to be protected against fiery darts. Well, what threat is a fiery dart to a guy in, in armor? 
If I'm wearing metal, why should I worry about a fiery dart? Well, a fiery dart's purpose isn't to ruin the metal. The fiery dart's purpose is to get my clothing on fire. If I, if, if an enemy can get my clothing on fire with a fiery dart, then what will I do? I will take off my armor. He got me to take off my own armor. And so what is the shield we hold up when the fiery darts are thrown at us? Verse 24 and 25, I'm just going to read them because the words are so powerful. However, it was nevertheless a fact that I had beheld a vision. I have since thought that I felt much like Paul when he made his defense before King Agrippa and related the account of the vision he had when he saw a light and heard a voice, but still there were but few who believed him. Some said he was dishonest, others said he was mad, and he was ridiculed and reviled. But all of this did not destroy the reality of his vision. He had seen a vision, he knew he had, and all the persecution under heaven could not make it otherwise. And though they should persecute him until death, Yet he knew and would know to his latest breath that he had both seen a light and heard a voice speaking unto him, and all the world could not make him think or believe otherwise. That's Paul. Now watch what Joseph does. So it was with me. I had actually seen a light, and in the midst of that light I saw two personages, and they did in reality speak to me. And though I was hated and persecuted for saying that I had seen a vision, yet it was true. And while they were persecuting me, reviling me, and speaking all manner of evil against me falsely for so saying, I was led to say in my heart, why persecute me for telling the truth? I have actually seen a vision, and who am I that I can withstand God? Or why does the world think to make me deny what I have actually seen? For I have seen a vision. I knew it. And I knew that God knew it, and I could not deny it, neither dared I do it. That is the shield, your testimony of your own experiences with God. Your experiences with God are the shield of faith that you hold up when the persecution comes. I know I have received a witness that this book is true. I know I have heard from God. I know He has communicated with me. And I know that He knows, and I cannot deny it. It is that witness that we hold up when the fiery darts are thrown. And that's what I I love these words from Joseph. I had actually received a testimony for myself. And why did the world want to have me deny what I knew was true? So you do that. You hold up that shield of faith. You hold up. Anytime there's a question, where's this rock fit in the wall? Anytime, whatever comes up, plural marriage is coming, you know, all these things, all these controversial subjects that are being thrown at church members, you hold them up. You hold up your shield and say, but I know that God has spoken to me that the book is true, that this church is his restored church. That's the shield you hold up. You know, I'll never forget the day that I felt the Spirit manifest itself to me that this is in reality true, and it changed everything. And so many times in my life, I've shared the first vision. I remember on my mission, we shared it so much. I saw a pillar of light exactly above my head, above the brightness of the sun. And I remember learning that in the MTC and memorizing it. And I remember asking my MTC teacher, I said, how come we don't get into the part about the adversary? coming to Joseph. And the teacher said something that really hit me. You know, I was a young 19-year-old, and he said, who's your audience? And I said, well, I'm talking to somebody who's not a member of the church. And he said, yes, what is your purpose in sharing the first vision to that person? And I said, well, I want them to know that Joseph was going to be called as a prophet. I want them to read the Book of Mormon. I want them to come to know that the things we're teaching are true. And he said, yes. Eventually, they'll, they'll see that, that part of the story. But for that audience at that time, at that place, you're not to distract them. You're to give them the truth that they need to have at that time. Now, I want to use that story that I learned in the, in the MTC as a pretext to one of the things that, let's just say it, to some people, this is troubling, that there's multiple accounts of the first vision. Gordon B. Hinckley said, we ought not to stress about it. 
This is what he said. He said, I'm not worried that the prophet Joseph gave a number of versions of the first vision any more than I'm worried that there are four different writers of the Gospels in the New Testament, each with their own perception, each telling the events to meet their own personal purpose for the writing at the time. I am more concerned with the fact that God has revealed in this dispensation a great and marvelous and beautiful plan that motivates men and women to love their creator and their redeemer, to appreciate and serve one another, and to walk in faith on the road that leads to immortality and eternal life. And so for President Hinckley, he says essentially, yeah, we've got four gospels, and they each kind of tell the story differently. And Joseph did share the first vision Sometimes officially in writing and in official channels and sometimes in private settings, we have many primary sources and then we have many secondary sources. And in the show notes, we've put them all together. They're all going to be there and you can read each and every one of them. And then we've also hyperlinked them to the Joseph Smith papers. So you can go and actually read in the handwriting of the person writing this down for yourself, every one of these accounts. Now, if there's an account that you know of that we don't have, please send us because I've been collecting these for a while. And to my best knowledge, all the way to the 1893 account, we've got all the primary and secondary accounts that we could get. But that being said, I acknowledge that to some people, if you're hearing this for the first time, that there are multiple accounts, that may be unsettling to some people. If you remember the old First Vision movie that was made back in the day, I think it was like in the late 70s with the actor from... Uh, where the red fern grows. Remember that actor? I don't know his name. Yep. But in that version, and Gordon B. Hinckley had a big role in getting that put together, they combined elements of the different accounts. For example, when Joseph's going to pray and he hears the footfalls, that's not in the 1838 canonized account in our scriptures, but that is in different accounts. Now, just as a side note before Mike continues, if you're interested, all four accounts are in the Gospel Library. If you'll, from the main root directory, go to Restoration and Church History, you'll notice that about fifth one down is First Vision. After the introduction, you will find the four main, what we call primary accounts, where Joseph dictates the account himself. Others are secondary, where Joseph said, and they wrote it down. But there are four times Joseph Smith dictated the account, and they're right there, the 1832, the 1835, the 1838 will just send you to the Pearl of Great Price, because that's what that one is, and the 1842. So just want to throw that out. The show notes have combined the primary and secondary accounts, but I want you to know that it's in your gospel library, that you ought to take some time this week to read through. Now, uh, the other three are very short. You can read through them in just a you know a sit down curious session. The eighteen thirty two is more of a journal. It's a personal account for Joseph. The eighteen thirty five was an account he gave to a traveling preacher. The eighteen forty two was basically the Wentworth letter that was supposed to be a history of religion in Illinois. So it's more of a historical. And the one we have in the Pro of Great Price is the one that we're studying is the 1838. So just a side note, I wanted to let everyone know that it is in your gospel library. And I'm really grateful to the Joseph Smith Papers crew, all those historians that have put this stuff together. This is all out there, and you don't have to buy the Joseph Smith Papers. It's all online, and we've hyperlinked it. So of the four accounts, I'm just going to briefly mention some aspects that are a little bit different in the three separate from the Pearl of Great Price. In the 32 account, Joseph mentions, he says, that his heart exclaimed, well, hath the wise man said, it is a fool that saith in his heart, there is no God. My heart exclaimed, all these bear testimony and bespeak an omnipotent and omnipresent power, a being who maketh laws and decreeth and bindeth all things in their bounds. In other words, Joseph Smith saw the cosmos, and he realized there's all this order. Certainly there's a God. There, there just has to be one. Other than that, in the 1832 account, it's very similar to the 1838 account. In the 35 account, the one three years previous to the one that's published in our canonized scripture, he talks about hearing the noise. And then when he has the vision, he says that he saw a pillar of fire above his head that filled him with unspeakable joy. And he was surprised that the fire didn't burn everything up. Yeah. And then yeah. he also says, I saw many angels many in this angels. vision. Which now, would suggest what, Mike? If you have time, I would encourage you to read First Nephi chapter 1. In First Nephi chapter 1, there's a pillar of fire that comes down on the rock, 
And later, the vision kind of continues that night where Lehi is brought up into the presence of God, and there's angels, and there's a council, and he sees the Father on the throne, we think, and then he sees a divine being come from the throne with a book. I think, now, we don't know, but there's enough evidence where Joseph gives clues that the vision starts on earth, but it ends up in heaven. In other words, God comes down to bring Joseph up. We're going to see this in some of the accounts. It's not entirely clear in any one account. So what we're doing is we're putting all the chess pieces on the board, working to paint a picture. Now, another thing I want to throw out there is, and I've mentioned it before, in the literature that doesn't make it into the Bible, it was rejected by the Jews, and many of the early Christians didn't know what to do with it. I'm referring to the book of Enoch. In the Enoch literature, there are these visions where there's a pillar of fire, and Enoch's brought up to the presence of God, and he sees a numberless concourses of angels. And then in part of the book of Enoch, he's brought into the presence of God, and then he turns, and he's looking at the veil from God's point of view. So there's our point of view of the veil, but when we're brought into God's presence, he puts his hand on Enoch's shoulder, he turns him, and Enoch looks at the veil from God's point of view. And in the Enoch literature, he says, I see all of creation all of history played out, and he sees it all on the veil. We kind of see that in the book of Revelation, right, where John's brought into God's presence and he sees this stuff played out. Now, I certainly don't know. I'm not Joseph. I'd be, it'd be so fascinating, right, to have this conversation with him. But I wouldn't be surprised if much of section one of the Doctrine and Covenants was contained in this vision. Because Joseph gives a hint. In 1843, he's talking about the first vision, and he says, I had the heavens opened... And then he says that God told him that the everlasting covenant had been broken. Now, that's not in this account. It's very tied to section one. Yeah. And logically, wouldn't you expect the Lord to show Joseph big picture, second coming, what role you play, the church you're going to restore? At some point, he certainly got that vision. Why not now? Why not show Joseph big picture? And we don't know, but there's enough hints where Joseph says, well, I had this happen, I had this happen. So we're going to stack these up. So the pillar of fire is also tied into... Just to quote what Mike just read, in the 1842, he says, I was enwrapped in a heavenly vision. That's what he says in the 1842 account. Yeah. Okay, back to what you were going to say, Yeah, yeah. So, so on, the, on the pillar of fire stuff in Enoch, over and over again, he's talking about this river of fire that proceeds from the throne. And we'll, we post all this in the show notes, but it's in 3 Enoch 36... Um, It's in some rabbinical commentaries. One scholar says, he saw a fire burning around one of his followers, and he expounded the mysteries of the chariot throne of God. And then the scholar says, the references to fire and the heavens being opened were intended for those who knew the secret tradition and what these phenomena really implied. In other words, this pillar of fire and God's throne is kind of code speak for the visionaries that lived in the time when it wasn't acceptable to be a visionary. See, after the first temple was destroyed during the second temple period from 600 BC to Jesus's day, the idea that you were a visionary was kind of shunned with the reformers. And Lehi stands in contradistinction to these ideas because Lehi is brought into the presence of God. Well, so is John, and so is Jesus, and so is Joseph. And so read First Nephi 1, where it talks about the pillar of fire. Anyway, that's fascinating to me. The 1842 account, we read this interesting little tidbit. Joseph writes that his mind was taken away from the objects which he was surrounded. So he's, he's in this surrounding of the trees, and he sees the pillar of light. And then he says, he saw two glorious personages who exactly resembled each other in features and likeness. And then he was told that a future time, the fullness of the gospel would be made known unto him. And so I want to submit to you this idea that where it says in the 42 account that his mind was taken away from the objects which he was surrounded with means that his spirit, perhaps, I don't know how this worked, but perhaps his spirit was lifted from his body to heaven. Because at the end of the 1838 account, look what it says in the middle of verse 20 in in the canonized version. He says, when I came to myself again, I found myself lying on my back, looking into heaven. And so perhaps this is how it went. 
So we're going to go through a couple of the secondary accounts briefly. In the 1840 account, he expected once again the leaves and the trees to be consumed. This is in Orson Pratt's account. But then he says, I saw two personages who exactly resembled each other in their features or likeness. Now, if you've seen the Del Parson painting of the father and the son, it's probably one of the more famous ones. I think it was the one we use on our flip charts when we taught in the mission field back in 1990. That was the painting that was inspired by the Orson Pratt account. In the 44 Alexander Nybauer account, he says that he saw the Savior having blue eyes and a piece of white cloth over his shoulders. Now, that account is a very personal account to a very faithful member. And that's going to have a different meaning in that context. And you can see why Joseph would share that in 1844. Think about Alexander Nybauer's position in the church and what's been revealed to the saints. There's others. But the, the last one I want to really emphasize is the, what's called the 1893 Charles Walker account. But this was actually an account given to a fellow by the name of John Alger. And in this account, Joseph says that the Lord touched his eyes with his finger and that he saw the Savior. And then John Alger says that Which Joseph— is very Enoch-like. Yeah, yeah. Back in, in our Pearl of Great Price in the book of Moses— he asks Enoch to put clay on his eyes and wipe them. He basically touches his eyes and he can see. And that becomes, you are now known as a seer, a seer. or a seer. Yeah. Very tied to previous scripture. What's fascinating when John Alder talks about this, he says that Joseph literally touched his eye to emphasize. So Joseph's talking about it, but it's a very tactile experience. And so I think this is a legitimate account. You know, he says that he put his finger to his eye, suiting the action with the words to illustrate and at the same time impress the occurrence on the minds of those to whom he was speaking. And that's a very personal account to faithful members of the church. Now, I share these these different accounts to kind of emphasize that there's almost like an insider and an outsider version of the first vision. And both are combined in our canonized text. Everything that Bryce talked about is brilliant on application. So good and so personal. Another aspect of this is that this vision has layers. And so, yes, it's about answering prayer and, and coming to God. On another level, perhaps, perhaps the first vision is a kind of endowment. And this is not coming from me. This is I, I read this when I read Don Browley's commentary, a historian, where he kind of went through this and he said that the first vision is an esoteric endowment. And what he means by esoteric, meaning that there's levels and it's veiled and it's secret. So for example, when Joseph comes home, how do you tell your mom that I had the heavens opened, I've seen angels, I've had my eyes touched, perhaps like we've talked about, maybe he's seen some of the stuff in section one. You're 14, how do you even communicate this? So the answer, like Bryce said in verse 20, his mom says, how you doing, Joseph? And he's like, never mind. I'm good, all is well, I'm well enough off. Talk about an understatement. Like 99.999% of his experience, he doesn't tell his mom. In other words, that this was an esoteric endowment, meaning that everything wasn't revealed at once. If Joseph only told elements of the first vision to others as they were ready for them, it is significant to note that the familiar published accounts of the first vision were all either written for general publication or recorded as Joseph narrated them to a non-Latter-day Saint audience. In other words, the familiar accounts of the first vision that we have were given precisely in the context directed to audiences where we would expect Joseph to have held back many of his experiences. So if you compare the four accounts to the secondary accounts, you start to see these things kind of open up. So how is it an endowment? Well, we, we've talked about the, his eyes being touched. And as Bryce said, yeah, that happens to Enoch in Moses 6.35. Also, Abraham's eyes were touched in Abraham 3. Or the man that had, he was blind and he had his eyes anointed with clay in John 9. Or Isaiah's mouth touched by the Lord in Isaiah 6. Or the stones that were touched in Ether 3. You see, the stones were touched so that the brother of Jared could see. As soon as they were touched, they were illuminated. It's fascinating. 
And I love President Hunter quoting Matthew where Jairus says, come and lay thy hands upon her and she shall live. President Hunter said, whatever Jesus lays his hands upon lives. It's that symbolism of when you are in doubt, Jesus lays his hands upon you and touches you. I see Joseph editing himself. I see the pillar of fire in the earlier accounts when he makes the official 1838. I think pillar of light would have been more familiar to the audience that he had, and so he calls it a pillar of light. It's also a heavenly ascent, I think, because he says in the 1842 account that his mind was taken from the objects with which he was surrounded. And then he says, and I was enwrapped in a heavenly vision. And as we before mentioned in the 38 account, he came to himself and found himself lying on his back. And so I think that this was certainly a heavenly ascent, that he was brought up into the presence of God. Now, historically, this is not in our account, but historically, this first vision actually led him to the acquisition of his first seer stone. And so we'll link that in the show notes. Just go down to where it says the first vision led to Joseph acquiring his seer stone. He actually walked 150 miles he traveled to get that seer stone. And his testimony of how he acquired it and what it did for him is actually in a transcript in a trial that he was in. And he talks about it. He refers to it as an all-seeing eye that he had after this vision and after he acquired this stone, the ability to be a seer which I find fascinating. We link it to the Joe Smith papers. It's interesting reading as this vision gave him the ability to see. Now, I love what Don Bradley says here where he says this vision, this first vision is a perfect example of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the the reason why is because God comes down to bring Joseph up. He says in Joseph Smith's first vision, there is an encapsulation of the gospel In Joseph Smith's experience, God came down to earth to take Joseph up to heaven. God came down to his level in order to lift him to God's level. This was not just an experience that taught the gospel. This experience was the gospel, that God came down so he might take us up. The first vision presents the gospel, in fact, in its fullness. He says, Joseph Smith's first vision is not just about God comes down, Christ suffers for us so that some of us maybe can be not thrown into flames forever and some of us can become angels, just sort of happy singing or whatever we're doing for all time. No. Instead, this is from the very beginning of the restoration, from the first vision, we see the gospel in its fullness, a gospel in which God reaches down to invite us to join him in his life. Joseph Smith's first vision is perhaps the paramount example of what the gospel of Jesus Christ can look like in human life. In the first vision, we see what the gospel is and what the gospel does. If you want to see what the gospel of Jesus Christ looks like in action, this is it. And with that, we leave you. Enjoy this study. It is the primary document of the restoration. Mike and I both testify of its truthfulness. Have a wonderful week, and we'll catch you next time. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.